Okay there, saints. Exodus chapter 21. Didn't think I'd be saying that for a while, did ya? There you go, 11 weeks later. Let's bow our hearts. Father, truly we are so grateful for the time that we had spent camped out there in the, the 20th chapter, learning piece by piece that Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, understanding where each bus route was going and, and uh, the issue wasn't going to the end and the last stop, but just being on that bus, going that direction. So often our hearts just are so vile, are so wicked. But thank you, Lord, for that plumb line. Thank you, Lord, for the revealer of truth. And now as you continue, Lord, your spirit wants us again to understand your heart and what it is that you, you have for us. And, and God, as we were just worshiping, we need you so desperately. We need you. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need guidance. We need empowering. And you provide all that. We are so grateful for that. And so, Lord, we're asking that as you provided it, may we be faithful, Lord, in utilizing what you've given to us. Knit us, Lord, to your heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 21. I'd like to read initially the, the, the first 11 verses, and then we'll kind of jump into our study. Exodus 21, now these are the judgments in which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she's borne him sons or daughters, the wife of and her children shall be your master's. And he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. And if a man, verse 7, sells his daughter... To be a female slave. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. We look to this as God begins now to deal with regulations. And understand what, what's happening here initially. And I want to make this note right off the bat that God is not 
instituting slavery. This is not where God says, I want you to make slaves. He's not doing that. What he's going to do is he's going to start regulating something that's already in the process. And so we see initially what God begins to do is the, the law begins to regulate behaviors. Not institute them, regulate them. And, and this is going to be a key as we go through this. Now, some things we're going to see that when you take a look at the foundation, they've been instituted long before. But there's a regulation that God wants established here in this book with these people at this time. The law of God has a twofold purpose in its regulation. One, it's going to reveal man. And the other thing it's going to do is it's going to reveal God. It's going to reveal the mind of man. It's going to reveal the heart of man. It's going to reveal the mind of God. It's going to reveal the, the, the heart of man and his mind as well. When it reveals man, understand, uh, bottom line, man needs guidance. We just don't normally think, oh, this is a great way to walk. This is a great way to do it. For whatever reason, when we take a look at what Scripture teaches, how many of us really, from the time that we were little, said, when I grow up, I want to be a servant. See, we all thought we wanted to be either a president or a queen or a princess or someone in charge. None of us wanted to be the one who was on the bottom of the rung. And what's interesting is when we take a look at this, man needs guidance. He needs to realize where his heart should be, one, in position not to elevate himself above other men, because we're all sinners, and then to be careful not to elevate yourself, of course, above God, where people are still doing that. Understand that if the possibility... And the reality of man committing these atrocities were already in men's heart, God wouldn't even have to say anything. Do you understand? I mean, if, if people had it in their heart and in their mind to, when they, when they turn off 83 and they start coming down Nagawaka Road to drive 30 miles an hour, you'd never have to have the sign there. And you'd never have to have the flashing sign that, that says, hey, um, you know what, you're going 31, don't do that. Or whatever flashes for you, I don't know. <laughs> but what happens is this: if there wasn't, if the acts weren't already in the mind and the heart, it wouldn't have to be stated. And so, just keep that in mind as we go through this. I want to share with you a little bit of what Scripture says is the reality of man. So what you can do is, is if you're a note taker, just, just jot down piece by piece as we go through this. I'm going to go through them rather quickly, so don't bother turning, but listen, ponder, jot them down. The first is found in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul himself makes this statement, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, he makes this statement, nothing Good dwells. Blows my mind. This this isn't this isn't you know one of the B apostles. This is the A apostle here. This is Paul himself. And and so we, we look to this and he says, I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. 
For Paul to make a statement that says, in my flesh there is nothing good, nothing good dwells, nothing good remains, is a huge statement that we need to look at. This is the, the, the reality of the flesh that we live in. And some would say, well, you know, Paul was really close to saying, well, his flesh was really bad, but it doesn't necessarily mean that his heart is really bad as well. Well, I want to take you to a passage in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. And it makes this statement. We're thinking the flesh is bad, yes. But what Jeremiah 17, 9 says is the heart is deceitful above all things. And then he asks this question. And it's desperately wicked who can know it. See, we think our flesh is just a bad, but then he says, no, not only is your flesh, your, your heart is also. And the thing is, it's not just bad, but it's deceitful and it's wicked. How many times have we justified a, a thought, a behavior, an action, and in our heart we think, well, I'm not really that bad because I wanted good. I had good intentions. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, how many times have you heard the, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? And, and we're thinking, all of us have good intentions. And I think the reality is what Scripture teaches, we all really have bad intentions. And we justify them, and we candy coat them, and we cover them up. So when we look to this, I think it's important to realize just how our flesh, there's nothing good in it. Our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We begin to see here that this is who we are. This is what Scripture declares that we are. There's another passage just to jot down. I want you to become aware of it. But in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, the Holy Spirit speaks this out. It says this, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? So in other words, if there's a man in Ethiopia who has dark skin, can he change it? Can a leopard change his spots? And then it adds this. Then may you also do good, you who are accustomed to evil. <laughs> You're just accustomed to evil. Go ahead. Try to do good. Try, try to change your spots. Try to change the color of your skin. Try to change your flesh. Try to change your heart. And the bottom line is, is without God, we can do nothing. And I think this is why God brings this law and he brings this word. Because he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt who we are, how desperately depraved man is. But keep in mind, it wasn't that long after the garden. And what happens is this. There in Genesis 6, and as we were going through Genesis 6, we, had a, we, we noted this. That, that Adam has these genealogies, he's go through it, and eventually it comes to a point where a man by the name of Noah is born. But it says this about Noah's generation. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it makes this statement, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And just in case you're thinking man has gotten better since then, 
It used to be that way, but then God wiped them all out, and of course he spared the eight. He spared Noah and, and his sons, and, and, and now we're all good, right? And, and so now we don't have that issue where the thoughts and the intents of the heart are only evil continually. Maybe you were a little bit higher there on the spectrum. I want to read to you one last passage just so that you can become aware of who we really are and why it is that we need this law. Why we need regulation, why we need guidance. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it declares this. Let me read it to you. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sin. And once you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also, and then he says this, we all once conducted ourselves. Let me read that again. We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This is incredible. He tells us that we were by nature, we were literally born into this. We were children of wrath. And in case you're thinking, well, maybe I wasn't born into that, let me tell you what David declares in Psalm 51, verse He says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now I know what you're saying. Well, you're depressing me. <laughs> and yes, the, the reality is, is the scripture does tell us that we shouldn't be elevating ourselves above man. That when we think that we have a justification to treat a certain person in a certain way, what God is trying to do through the law is teach us two things. Love him, with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And, and as, as love is basically the accumulation of all the law, what he's doing is he's regulating our behaviors that were at one point a very natural thing. I believe that when Adam and Eve were created, that they had a very natural bent to do the things to glorify God. But when the sin nature came, all of a sudden it wasn't to glorify God, and now it's to please me. It's to deal with my flesh. And God wasn't the primary anymore. He wasn't the key, and his glory was not what we seek after. Now, the beautiful thing is when we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, now we have that nature again rebirth in this what a beautiful thing but I do want you to understand that the reason and the purpose for the law was to reveal if you want to put a, a heading for those last few verses you could just put down depravity <laughs> just the wretchedness and the wickedness of men and that's what the law does it shows how depraved the natural man is without guidance Without God's spirit, without his word, we're naturally going to do what is right in our own eyes. 
And the danger comes is when we begin to do what is right in our own eyes. We justify our heart. We do not believe that it is deceiving us. We do not believe that it is wicked. We do not believe that our flesh is pursuing evil. We don't believe that we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We don't understand that we are dead and we continued in these things. It wasn't like we did it once, we did it. We continued in those things. That's depravity. But what the law also does is this. It shows God. It shows the opposite of man. It shows glory. It shows, you know, just the, the, the beautiful majesty of the heart of God. I want to share with you just a couple of verses. You can jot these down too. Don't turn there because I'm already marked and I'm going to be way ahead of you. But in Isaiah 42, verse 21, it's an amazing passage, but, but the, the Lord makes this statement. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. God looks at his heart. He looks at his mind and says, I like it. Do you understand what God does? He looks at his heart and he looks at his mind and he's pleased. He, he likes what he sees when he sees his mind. He sees his heart. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. He can say, this is my heart. This, this, is, this is the perfect way for you to react to the things of me. And, and in that amazing way, in that same chapter of Romans, where Paul was saying, there's nothing good in me, here's what he also said dealing with, with the law. There in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, he said this, the law, therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. See, the law itself isn't bad. The issue with the law is that we find it difficult to be regulated in a good direction because our flesh and our mind and our heart all want to go in another direction. We rebel against the, the, the glorifying God and loving Him and loving people. That's not our normal nature anymore. But I love what God does. He says that the law is holy. The commandment is holy and just and good. This is the heart of God. This is where he's at. And when we take a look at what we're about to cover here in these next few chapters, dealing with this word of God, dealing with this regulation that he sets upon us, I want to take you to just one last passage to jot down and this is in Psalm 138, verse 2. When I say it, you probably already remember that, that passage. But it declares this, Psalm 38, 2. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Now we talked about it before that that term name is also synonymous of character. When you have a good name and you say, wow, you've given your family a good name, it means your family has good character. When you've given your family a bad name, it means you're soiling the character of your family. And what God does is he elevates, he magnifies his word to say, this is my character exalted. So you understand when the regulations come, what God is trying to do here. 
When we look to these passages and we look to these regulations, God is trying to say, don't think that as we go through this that you don't have a bent towards that. Remember what we did when we went through the commandments, and this is why God said the commandments first. Each commandment is a bus route. You may have not gone to the end of the line, but you've been on that bus, and maybe you've gone off in the first route or the second route, and you, but you've been on that bus, and the, the failure is getting on that bus. The failure is knowing that your heart is capable of going in that direction. And what every single point where, where God begins to try to regulate these behaviors is realizing, he'll say, well, I could never do that. <laughs> Just go back to the commandments. It's the heart issue. Your heart can go there. You may not physically, purposely get to the end of the line, but it's already there. And what God chooses to do as he begins to regulate society, regulate the mind and regulate the heart of the children of Israel the very first thing that he does is this. There in 21, verse 1 of Exodus, he says, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. These are declarations. These are rights and wrongs. And so this is regulation is what he's saying. I'm regulating behaviors. These are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you choose to go in a wrong behavior, then the society will help regulate what is right. Because your bent isn't to do what's right. Now, if I get proper judges and proper leaders, then they're going to be the one to institute the right behaviors. And this is the heart where God says, and this word is for all people, not just for the kings and not just for the priests, but it's for all people. And so he says, these are the judgments and the very first people that God begins to open up to say, this is where I want love bestowed. Amazing. And that the command, right? Love God, love people. The very first thing that he's saying this now, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. Amazingly. What we're recognizing is this, that, that God himself, as we talked about it before, is not instituting slavery. But slavery was already present at that time. Slavery was already a thing that was done. It was already a part of the, the lives of everyone in Israel. They understood it. Some had slaves and some were slaves. Now keep in mind that you could be a slave and still have slaves. Amazingly, that was part of the culture. You could have someone serve you. I want to take you to a, a passage so you understand exactly where slavery was instituted, how it looks. Slavery began, at least to our understanding, a great passage is found in Genesis chapter 47. We dealt with it when we went through the book. But I want you to focus on one aspect here as we go through this. In Genesis 47, I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Read all the way down to verse 25. And it's going to focus on this. We understand that there is a famine going on in the land. 
Joseph, he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream. Seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. But you're going to have the, the prosperity first. So you can gather enough up to make it through so you'll have the, be able to live through the seven bad years. And Joseph and Egypt saved. The rest of the people did not. Joseph and the people prepared for a long period of drought and famine. No one else did. And this is what begins to happen. At this point, they're wanting to come back. They first buy the grain that they have no money. They sell off their livestock. They have that, they run a livestock. They sell their property. But it begins this in verse 19. He says, Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we... And our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed, that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Do you understand that they didn't prepare? They were at a point of hardship. And without an intervention, they would have died. So they have nothing to buy with, but they do have something to barter with, their time and their lives. We will serve you. We will become your servants. The term also could be slaves, but we will simply make ourselves indentured to you. We'll give you our lands. They're now yours. We'll give you us and our labor. We're yours, but you keep feeding us. You keep us alive, and we'll give you our life. It was just a trade. It was a barter because of the poor decisions that they did. And that's what he says. There in verse 19, once again, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, buy us and our land for bread, that we and our land that may be, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh, give us seed that we may live and not die, the land that may not be desolate. Then Joseph, verse 20, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because of the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. Verse 21, and as for the people, he moved them into cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Only, it says here in verse 22, the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as for your food for those of your household and food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. This is a thing that was already back in the time of Joseph. They already knew what it was to be an indentured servant. And uniquely what happens is this, that within this 21st chapter, we're dealing in the first 11 verses with both the male and the female servants. 
The first six verses, we're going to see deal strictly and only with the male servants. So from verses 1 through 6, it's only dealing with the male servant. In verses 7 through 11, it's only dealing with the female servant. So God separates the two. The two were not the same. They were not equal. And so as we begin to see here, there in verse 2, speaking of the male servant, it says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he, understand that pronoun, he is a male servant, he shall serve six years, and the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. God is instituting this beautiful passage dealing with the Hebrew servant. If there's a, a, a fellow Hebrew who doesn't have income, who isn't being provided for, and he hasn't provided for himself, and he needs to become a servant to someone else, God is going to regulate the behavior of the master and the servant, of the one who is, you know, financially above, but not spiritually above, because we're all sinners. And so he's trying to regulate this behavior because you may be financially above someone or in society above someone. It doesn't mean that what that you're better than them. We're, we're all unrighteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. One thing that I do want you to be aware of what God declares, one verse, jot it down. It's found in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 55. It's an important verse. It's one of the foundational verses that we're going to cover and we'll look at this from time to time. But in Leviticus 25, verse 55, it says, For the children of Israel are servants to me. This is God. God's saying, listen, you're a steward of me, and I'm giving you this servant but he's mine. You're a steward of him. Basically, you're like the, the section head. But you're my servant as well. And this is what God says. The children of Israel are servants to me. Even the one who says, I, I have all servants. No, you're still a servant to God. Every single child of Israel is a servant to God. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. You understand that God says, you're my servant, I'm regulating what you need to do to this one that I put over you, to the one that you're now taking care of, to the one that you have, in a sense, saved their life. So understand, your mind and their mind, you need to behave. You can't simply do what you want to do. I'm going to regulate this behavior. And he makes a statement that is so powerful. If you buy a Hebrew servant, verse 2, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. When a man is needing to say, I haven't been able to take care of myself, he will go and he will put himself under another person and he will serve that person for six years. It's the number of men, six. And so I'm going to serve a man for the sixth year, but in the seventh completion, he says, this is a year of rest. You no longer take that. It's a Sabbath year, if you will. 
And even the slave gets that whole year off. And I, I find it a beautiful thing. There's a passage that you may want to be aware of found in Deuteronomy chapter 15. A couple of verses I'm going to read to you. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Read down to verse 18. Because it's, in a sense, establishing a little deeper what we're seeing here in this passage. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, which we'll get into when we get down to verse 7, is sold to you and serves you six years, then the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Now notice there's, there's a catch here in the pronouns. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then you shall let him, not them, him. He gets to go free. Let him go free from you. And when you send him away, free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, and here's the thing, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house and since he prospers with you. There was a provision for a servant that if a man served six years and he went and just kind of blew everything, he's like, man, I'm, I'm back like that prodigal son again, trying to eat pig pods and I'm just not enjoying it. I go put myself under him again. Another six years, I said, you know, I'm tired of just leaving. I, I don't have the ability really to take care of myself. I love my master. I love what I have, the provision underneath him. I do not want to go. I, I'm not able to do this of my own. He, in a sense, is taking care of me. And what a beautiful thing that we begin to see. And so it says in verse 16, back in this passage of Deuteronomy 15, it happens if he says, I will not go away from you because he loves your house. And since he prospers with you, then you shall take an all and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. Also, your female servant, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years that the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. You honor me, I'll bless you. You follow this way, this is where the blessings flow. But you gotta understand where God is regulating and so as he does this, he now comes back to our text in, in Exodus 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. But it doesn't mean that you supply him liberally with seed and flocks, and you give him what he needs to, to start out by himself if he has that ability. Now, verse 3, there's a regulation. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. In other words, you come in, you go out. It's fair. But you go out with 
food, you go out with grain, you go out with cattle, you go out with, with a reward. But you come in by yourself, you go out by yourself. If he comes in married, then his wife will go out with him. So if I come in and, and, and my wife and my kids are with me, after the six years, I take my wife, I take my kids, and I go. But then he says this. Verse 4, if the master has given him a wife. Now understand, it's still just a man. It's him, it's him, it's him. If the master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out by himself. So all of a sudden, I come in as a single man. And while I'm there, I fall in love with one of the servants who are my master. Or my master says, hey, I want to bless you. You can just have her. And she becomes my wife at this point. What happens is this. She can still be my wife, and they can still be my kids, but I'm living over there, and they're still here because they're his servants. But I get a choice. I can go out by myself, but verse 5, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. I love what I have here with my master. And this, which belongs to him, I can't redeem. I don't have the ability to redeem them. Now keep in mind that a slave could redeem a slave. If a man was able to come and, and say, I'm going to leave and leave my wife and leave my kids, he could, down the road, redeem them. He could purchase them. He could buy his wife and buy his kids and free them from being a servant of a man. You could do this. But initially, you go out by yourself. But if you don't want to go out by yourself and you simply say, no, I, want to, I like this arrangement. It's really nice. I don't want to leave my master. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I will not go out free. Then, verse 6, his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. Incredible that what begins to happen is that when a servant says... I no longer want to do anything on my own. I'm going to give myself over to be a servant continually. Then what begins to happen is this. And I find it interesting that he comes to this door and he's pierced. Note the word. He's pierced. And once he's pierced, he's saying, I'm willingly allowing myself to be pierced in my ear. But to be pierced, and I'm going to serve and be a servant forever. We'll look at that in a little bit. But what I want to do is this. This is how God wants to regulate a master dealing with someone that he brings as a servant. You treat them well because you're my servant, they're my servant. You allow them to serve you for six years. And in that sixth year, you're going to be providing them with seed and cattle, and you're not just sending them out empty-handed. There's a great honor that God does to the servant. It's amazing that when we take a look at really what the servant is, 
that in Scripture, the servant itself is probably one of the highest elevated passages in all of Scripture. The servant is. I want to take you to that passage. Found in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. You guys know it already as I go to verse 5 and read down to the first part of, of, of verse 8. Or verse 9. It says this. Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God but he made himself of no reputation is taking the form of a bond servant. You know what a bond servant is? Someone who has their ear pierced with an awl. He came and he says, I'm going to pierce myself. I'm going to allow myself to be pierced and I will serve. And this is what he does. He's God. He doesn't consider robbery a lesser thing to be equal with the Father. He doesn't say, oh man, you're ripping me off. You know? He is fully God, and yet he becomes fully man. And amazingly, we begin to see how God elevates this mindset of a servant. And he starts with servant right off the bat. And then we begin to see how he elevates a servant through the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, the servant, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Do you understand how God takes this position as a servant and in Scripture elevates it to the highest thing you could possibly be? If you want to be the greatest of the kingdom, he says what? He's the servant of all. And it's amazing that society looked at the servant and saw them as the lowest of people, and God looked at the servant and saw them as what? These are the people that won't think more highly of themselves than they ought. They have one less issue to deal with. And I think it's interesting to see here as God begins to try to focus here on, on really what he wants this understanding of the relationship of the master and his servant to be as he begins to regulate it. And then he does the next thing. After he regulates a male servant, now in verse 7, he begins to regulate the female servant. It declares this, And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave... Now, rather than the guy coming in and say, yeah, I'll just give myself over, I'll take my wife, I'll take my daughters, and I'll give myself. I don't know what kind of dad does this, but he sells his daughter to be a female slave. Now, there are certain things in this culture that would be beneficial. Let's put it this way. We don't, well, I guess we do. There are some cultures that have it in a greater degree. If you've ever been to India, maybe you've known about it. They have what's known as a caste system. Do you have those that are up here, and then another lower caste, the lower caste, and the bottom caste? So, so you have degrees of what they feel is their worth in society. The higher the caste, the more they feel your worth. The lower the caste, the less they feel your worth. 
The same thing was true here. There was, there was parts of society. Some were, were better, some were worse. And if you... There were certain times where if a father wanted to benefit his daughter, and this is unique, if she married someone in her own caste, she married someone in her societal equal, she would be down here. But if a father said, I want to elevate your status and I'm going to actually sell you to this man and his status is way up here and actually he's interested in you, he's going to marry you, you'll be either a concubine or you'll be his, his son's wife. He, they're really elevating them in a position in society. So where we always think it's a negative thing, keep in mind that sometimes it's not that negative. A father was trying to do his daughter something good by elevating her so that her children would not be down in this lower caste. But we see here, let's come back to verse 7. If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, it makes the statement, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. In this society, males were considered up here and females were considered down here. It's just the way society was. God didn't institute it that way, but it's what society has done. And within this, the way that God wasn't instituting that a woman should be lesser, God was regulating us part of society that was already seeing this way. Now notice what he's going to do in this regulation point. He's going to elevate the women, elevate the women, elevate the women. But society already has this procedure. God has now regulated this procedure. But he makes a statement. He said a woman won't work for six years and then won't go out and, and do her own thing. She won't go out with livestock and go out with things because she's a woman. But she will do this. If a man sells his daughter to female slave, she will not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, it makes a statement let her be redeemed. This is beautiful. And I think it's so important to recognize here the, the heart of what God is desiring. If you have this, where you have this woman, and she goes out, and what he seeks to do is this, and that's why it says in verse 9, if he has betrothed... Wait, verse 8. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself. So in other words, I want you to be my wife. I want you, sometimes it was, I want you to be my concubine. But you would move your daughter to a higher position in society. And so, we see here. If she doesn't please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall, she, he shall let her be redeemed. What does it mean to let her be redeemed? There's a passage found in Leviticus chapter 25. Just prior to that verse that we read in verse 55. I want to back all the way up to verse 47 to teach you what it means to be redeemed. It declares this, Leviticus 25, verse 47, If a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, 
So one is rich, one is poor. And he sells himself to a stranger or a sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family. So understand where it says that the stranger comes in and you become rich and one of your brethren becomes poor. You've made it, they didn't. Your crops are good, their crops aren't. But what happens is this. Verse 40, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near to kin of him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. So if he works at it, it's about, I, I can pay myself off. Here, this is what you bought me for. I'll pay you this a little extra. I'm, I'm free to go. You can do that. Or if you have someone in your family, whether it's a near family, your brother or an uncle or someone who's further off, if you're a family member, they say, no, I don't want you to be a slave. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to purchase you away from that stranger. It says this in, in verse 50. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. In other words, work out a bargain. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold until the year of the Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of the hired servant for him. So when you sell yourself to a Hebrew, you have seven years of service, the last one you go free. You sell yourself to a stranger, you serve until the Jubilee, 50 years. That's a long time. I would recommend selling yourself to a, to a brother. It just makes more sense. But if you have someone, it says that depending on how long you've been a servant, you can knock off the price of what it is. Because you, if, you, if you're 25 years in, you should get half the price. Do you understand? If you're 10 years in, you get one-fifth of the price off. But it says this, verse 51, if there are still many years remaining according to then he shall repay the price of the redemption for the money with which he was bought. And if there remain but a few years until the Jubilee, then he shall reckon with them, take off some time. And according to his years, he shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant. He shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. In other words, he's going to be your servant. He's going to be a family member, but hey, you're working for me now. But you're not going to serve with rigor. You're a family member. You're going to come in. And so we begin to see here, it's just a beautiful portion that he begins to, to say. And then again in verse 53, he said, He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant. He shall not rule with rigor or over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. So in the year of Jubilee, all frees are slaves. All slaves are free. And the amazing thing is if you would purchase someone five years before Jubilee, you only get to serve five years. If it's six months before Jubilee, he only serves you six months. So the more close you are to Jubilee, you may not want someone or you don't want to pay that much for them because you're not going to get your money's worth. So verse 55, for the children of Israel are servants to me, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the heart of where God begins to establish what he's talking about. One other portion of, of the, the, the kinsman redeemer. You probably know this already, but if you don't, there's a passage 
in the book of Ruth. There's Ruth, Naomi, and this man by the name of Boaz. Boaz is going to be a kinsman redeemer. And I want to read to you a portion in Luke chapter 4. I want to read the first 10 verses, but it declares this. Now Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the close relative whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, and sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took <coughs> ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, has sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. In other words, you're the top one, and I'm after you. And he said, I will not redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. In other words, you're going to have to marry here Ruth, and then you're going to have to have a child through her, and then it's going to be a descendant of Elimelech, not yours. It kind of is like, oh, you kind of threw that one off. And then the close relative in verse 6 said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off a sandal and gave it to another. And this was the confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relatives said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off a sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witness this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I've acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead, which would be Elimelech and Malon, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day, the kinsman redeemer. So anyone who is a near relative of this woman if she's at a place that they can elevate her, then you can purchase her, you can buy her, you can redeem her. But for the most part, she was married into that person. Now, if he's not pleased with her, then you can redeem her. And it says this again in our text, Exodus 21, verse 8. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed, for he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. You said, love, honor, and cherish for the long as both shall live. You don't do that. You allow a, a kinsman to redeem her, bring her away back to the family. You can't sell her off. And so in verse 9, the next step is this. If a man didn't bring, sell a woman to a guy to marry him, but to marry her son. 
It says this in verse 9, And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. In other words, she becomes a daughter to you. You treat her as a daughter. You treat her well. You treat her kindly. This is the regulation of the behavior of the master to the servant. She's either as a wife or she's as your daughter. Now, think about that. That's an elevation. That's an elevation. It isn't something that is a degradation, but here's a father who has nothing. He says, I'm going to elevate you to be a daughter in, in the household that is above me so that you'll have a better way to have life. And so what God does is this. He institutes this so that they're regulated, so that the woman is loved. Do you understand this? Not, not that she's belittled, not that she's beaten, not that she's lesser, but that she's loved. And this is what God establishes. And then it declares this in verse 10. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marriage rights. Now understand that God is not instituting polygamy. What he's saying is this, that of that woman that you brought in to be your wife, if you do take another wife, if you go in that direction, then you do not neglect this woman. She still has, and this is what it says, you need to make sure that she still has all of her food. You need to make sure that she's clothed and her marriage rights. In other words, she needs to have a place to live. She has to have all that. You've already committed to this by purchasing her. Her whole life, you will take care of her. Isn't it amazing how God regulates love? And he says, if you're not going to do that intimacy with her, you're still going to provide all the things that she would need. And then it says this in verse 11, And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. <laughs> wow, that is a huge thing for a master to realize. When I'm going to bring in this woman as a female servant, either I will marry her, she will be as my wife, and or if I give her to her, my son, she's going to be as a daughter that I will love. But what we recognize is this, that if I don't do these things for her, she gets to go out free. If you treat her wrongly, if you don't elevate her to a point of, of ministering to her as she's serving you, being joint heirs together in that sense, then she goes out free. You just lost it all. So understand, and I wanted you to focus on just these first sections because it deals with the male, it deals with the female, and it, what it does is this, it deals with loving them. It's, yeah, you are going to be here, you're going to be in my house, and there's rules and regulations, there's things we do. I'm not going to just simply let you, you know, sit on the couch and, and, and eat, you know, Hebrew bonbons. You can't do that. We, are got, we have work to do in our family. There's things that we will do. You will be a part of this family, but you will be taken care of. You won't be diminished. And we're going to see here, in the, as we go on a little bit further, that when you actually have a servant and you treat them badly, you've lost them. Or you could be punished for, for, for treating them badly. So I want to pause here and stop here for tonight just so that you can have this focal point on what God does. 
in the 11 verses that we've covered, we dealt with the, the six verses of the dealing with the manservant, the last with, with the female servant. He does the men first, the female second. And so we see here, the whole point is, the woman will be with that guy forever. Why is that important for us? Well, when we're betrothed to Christ, and we're giving over to him, now understand what he has done. He's become a servant. And we've been given over to him as the son, and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. As the bride, you, you don't leave. But this is what's important. We have that picture of the bride, but Jesus Christ is a little different. He has the picture of the, the servant. Let me take you to one last passage as we close tonight. It's found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, I want to read just a couple of verses. I want to start in verse 6, read down to verse 8. Within this thing, it, it, the, the psalm is the psalm of David. It's, it's about the delighting to do God's will, but it makes a statement. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire. You don't want bulls and goats. But it says this, my ears you have opened. Do you understand? You pierced my ear. You, you've, you, you've made my ear. You've pierced it with an awl. You don't desire sacrifice and offering, but I'm giving you my life as a servant. This is what I want. This is what Jesus is doing. Burnt offering is sin you do not require. And then I said, verse 7 of Psalm 40, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your laws within my heart. Jesus. Jesus is this perfect picture of this slave that says, I love, and I'm going to be a servant forever. And, and I'm going to choose this willingly. I don't have to, because I get to go free. I can, I can do whatever I want. Jesus did not have to redeem us. He did not have to become a servant. He chose to do this willingly. And understand why God, first and foremost, starts with a servant. Because in the very beginning of how he begins to regulate behaviors, we see Jesus Christ. That's how you regulate behaviors. Paul said this, imitate Christ. And then you go on and say, oh yeah, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do you understand? The behaviors of the servant is this, look to Jesus Christ. And, and, and as he became the servant, this is where, where if you want to be great in the kingdom, become this. Become this. And understand that the world will say, well, if you're a servant, you're lower. You're a servant, you're lower. And understand, if you're a servant, you're first in God's book. This is the amazing thing that our culture and our mindset, we don't get it. And that's what I love what the Holy Spirit does in this portion, how he begins with the very lowest of society, but yet throughout the scripture, the servant is elevated to the highest degree because that's what Christ did. Let us, as we start going through the rest of this, take this picture, this foundation, and take it along with us. Amen? Mm -hmm. Father, we are so grateful for this passage, your heart, your word. And Lord, um, these are the judgments which you set. You have to regulate behavior because we are so horrible. But yet you are so good. And this word is perfect. This word is amazing. 
And Lord, we look at it in our culture. We look at it in the abuses of our culture. We see it only as a negative. And yet, Lord, you regulated love. This beautiful thing that you have done, you've regulated love and liberty. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Thank you that we don't have to apply this according to what we think of it in our culture now, but what it was then. Oh, bless your word. Set this foundation anchored in our heart as we continue to go through these passages. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.